When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Taking charge of your future starts with taking the first steps. And saving up to $30 a month on Cox Internet with the Affordable Connectivity Program makes those steps easy to take. Whether they bring you to click upload on your first short film or join now for an online book club. Applying is easy. See if you qualify at cox.com slash ACP. Non-transferable one per household application and eligibility decisions are made by the FCC. Today's two-part episode of Hometown History Europe explores a Nazi massacre in France. It's an important event that more people should know about, but bear in mind that some of the details may be upsetting. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of this special two-part Hometown History Europe, where we are exploring what is known as the worst Nazi war crime to ever take place in France. It's an incident that is sadly not so well known outside of the country. It should be. Because on June the 10th, 1944, a few days after the D-Day landings, Nazi soldiers surrounded an otherwise unremarkable village in the French countryside, And after assembling the entire community on the village green, they separated the men from the women and children. Last time we heard how the men were herded into a barn, then shot, and the barn was set on fire. And now we continue our look at the events of that day and begin by asking what happened to the women and children. This is the Nazi massacre of Urhador Suglan, the village of the martyrs. After being separated from the men on the village green, the women and children had been led to the village church. It was made of solid stone, and there were about 250 women and 200 children and babies herded like cattle into a now overcrowded church. And once they were inside, the Germans slammed the door shut and left them there. But only for a while. Every now and then, the soldiers would come back in to check on them, and then they would leave again. Worried and confused, the women and children waited in the heat of the church, wondering what was happening to the men, and what might happen to them. They found out 19 minutes later, when the door of the church opened. Behind it were two German soldiers who ordered the crowd to step aside, and they were carrying something. Something strange and small and heavy. It was a box, just over a foot across. It had what was later described as tangled white strings attached to it. The Germans dragged two chairs in front of the church altar, and then they placed this heavy little box on the chairs. 
Then they removed the cover. Most of the women and children could not see what was going on. It was just too crowded in there. But some near the front may have quickly realized what this box was when one of the soldiers struck a match and lit one of the tangled white strings. It was a fuse. And the fuse sparked into life. And as soon as it did, the soldiers quickly left in silence through a side door of the church. A surviving woman said that the crowd did not panic. Perhaps there just wasn't time. Because very soon after, the bomb exploded. Anybody outside would have heard the huge boom. But they'd have also watched all of the stained glass windows explode outward. And the church was instantly filled with thick black smoke that was acidic smelling and incredibly harsh on the lungs. The women and children fell into panic, grasping at their throats as they raced for the doors. But the doors had been locked. So the crowd turned into a deadly crush. And some of the crowd managed to break down the door of the sacristy. That's a small room to the left of the altar. And once they rushed inside and found a space in the church that the smoke had not reached yet, they tried to catch their breath. But they didn't have long because the soldiers came inside the church again and found these people in the sacristy and opened fire with their machine guns. Other soldiers outside even slid the barrels of their guns through the windows of the sacristy and started firing bullets inside. If that wasn't enough, another set of Nazi soldiers headed into the basement of the church, and once in there, they lifted their machine guns to the ceiling and started firing up through the floorboards. After that, they threw grenades onto the basement floor, and it exploded and set fire to the wooden boards down there. Germans helped this fire grow by opening up the door and throwing straw and chairs and benches and firewood on top of the bodies, like they had done in the barn with the men. And so the fire swept through, and it was said that the church became filled with terrible screaming. A woman who would play an important role in this whole affair had been inside, with her two daughters and her grandson. Her name was Madame Rofance, and during the carnage in the church, she saw one of her daughters killed when a bullet hit her throat. And as the chaos exploded in there, Madame Rofance found herself by the sacristy, where she pretended to be dead. And she stayed utterly still, even as the fire crept closer. But when it reached close enough to singe her hair, she had to get up and run. Thankfully, the soldiers weren't there at that precise moment, and so she managed to find a little stepladder that was normally used for lighting the church candles. She used it to climb up and out of one of the shattered stained glass windows. She had to drop ten feet into some prickly shrubs below. But as she fell, Madame Hoffance said she heard a voice from above her. She looked back up to see a young woman. Her name was Henriette Jouayou, and she had followed Rufance up the stepladder to the window. This 23-year-old mother was holding René, her seven-month-old baby, and she pleaded, saying, Mother Rufance, please catch my little one. And she threw René out of the window. In the panic, Madame Rufance was somehow unable to catch the baby. 
and so as the baby hit the ground, it cried out. The soldiers heard it and came running. They shot Henriette just as she was leaping from the window. Madame Rufance, however, got up and ran towards the garden of the church rectory. While the soldiers opened fire on her, bullets hit her thighs and her shoulder blade, and she fell into the garden. She appeared so clearly dead that the soldiers did not come closer to check, and yet, astonishingly, she was alive. And she lay there as the nearby church boomed in another explosion which brought down the church tower. And she would lie in that position for the entire night and most of the next day, sucking the leaves of the green peas that were growing under her to help quench her horrendous thirst. There was no place in this village that was untouched that day. Those who stayed in their homes rather than join the crowd on the green had not escaped. Once the barns and church were ablaze, the Nazis started moving through the village, looting goods and looking for anybody who may be hiding. And they set fire to all of the buildings. Many were burned alive in their own homes, but at least some managed to get out of their houses and run. There were, of course, some locals who had not been in the village that day. They had been away or working in other places. And some of these people started to head back to the village by tram that evening. And they were horrified to see plumes of black smoke rising from their hometown. Some of those returning were intercepted by German soldiers and rounded up. And yet they were spared. But they were told by the soldiers how lucky they should consider themselves, since their entire village was now dead. Villagers were still arriving home between 7 and 8 p.m., taking in the sheer horror and devastation of what had happened that day. The place seemed to have been left for dead, but little did they realize that there were still some German soldiers still in the village. In fact, some of the soldiers stayed until about 10 p.m. that night. Some of the returning villagers were shot as they came back home desperately looking for loved ones. But for now, it seemed that on the whole, this long day of killings was over, at least for this village, because by now the black night sky was glowing orange from the raging fires, and you could hear the sound of the buildings collapsing and animals wandering aimlessly through the fields. This glowing sky would have been seen from the nearby villages and hamlets, where people were now gathering and staring in horror, what was happening? Were the Nazis about to sweep through all of the villages? The people of nearby Martinery were so scared this would happen that they gathered up their blankets and they all slept in the forest that night. Yet while fear and confusion spread across the region as fast as the fire, the Germans did not attack anywhere else. There were a few remaining German sentries that had been left in Orhandor, but they were picked up along with the remaining equipment like a spotlight. Finally, the Nazis had left, leaving the locals and a few surviving traumatized people of Urhandor to search for survivors. And what they found was simply beyond comprehension. The once thriving village of Urhandor Suglan was gone. Every single building in the village, all 328 of them, had been destroyed but far worse, 642 people had been slaughtered in this massacre. 245 women, 
119 men and 207 children. And everyone was still left with the question, why? Why did the Germans choose to attack this seemingly run-of-the-mill village? What led to such an atrocious war crime? And how would the world respond? The people of France began to learn of this atrocity in the days ahead, and they were understandably appalled. And when word of Orhandor reached Germany, there were protests there too. The focus of outrage was on one of the commanders of the raid, Adolf Deichmann. He was heavily criticized, even from other Nazi officers, for going way beyond his orders in commanding the death of all of these innocent people. A German investigation into the war crime began, but Deichmann never actually faced trial. He was killed in action not long after, during the Battle of Normandy. In fact, many of the soldiers who took part in the massacre died in that very same battle. And after that happened, the Germans suspended their investigation. However, out of the 200 men who carried out the massacre, 65 of them were still alive on the 12th of January 1953, when a military tribunal finally heard the case in Bordeaux, France. Many of these men were from East Germany, which meant it was impossible to extradite them at the time. However, 21 of the soldiers did appear in court. Some of them were Germans, but the rest were what is called Alsatians. This means French nationals that had worked for the German army during the Nazi occupation of France. 13 of these 14 Alsatians insisted that they had been forced to be soldiers and forced to kill that day. Madame Rouffance testified at the trial. She is the woman who had jumped from the church window and managed to survive in the rectory garden. She would be found about a day and a half after the attack, still lying in the garden, and she was rushed to hospital and was one of the few survivors of the massacre. In fact, she was the only witness to survive what happened inside the church to all the women and children, including her own. In the aftermath of the attack, there were fears that the German soldiers might even try to track her down and assassinate her, so she couldn't testify in any future war crimes trial. So the hospital only permitted her parents to visit her, and they frequently switched her hospital room just in case she was found. And yet she lived on, and she was a key witness in this military trial of 53. She came into the courtroom that day using a cane and was dressed completely in black. She looked old and frail, and anybody who didn't know any better might presume she was quite elderly. But she was 55. The tribunal recognized what a trauma this was, and the president of the inquiry apologized to her profusely for asking her to revisit the events of 1944, and he insisted that if she ever got too tired, she could just say the word and they would suspend her testimony until she felt ready to carry on. Everyone understood what this woman had experienced. But she boldly told the court exactly what she had seen. Afterwards, she was asked if there was anything more to add. And she said this. I ask only that, with God's help, justice be done. I ask, as one wanted, and as a true witness of what happened in the church, as a survivor of that crematorium, and as a mother. After she shared her detailed account of the massacre, the court asked the defendants if they had anything to say. One of them 
a German called Fritz Pfeiffer, replied. He had turned 18 years old just one day before the massacre. He said this. In Oradour, I was part of a firing squad. It was the first time that I was obliged to shoot men. Believe me, Monsieur President, being only 18 years old at that time, it was not easy for me. The officers were standing behind us. I believe that as far as they were concerned, that they had very good reasons to do this. But when I learned later what happened to the women and children, I was upset and deeply troubled. I understood that the officers had exceeded their authority. I am ashamed for them, and especially for the fact that they lacked the courage to come here today to settle their account. A strong part of the defense of these men at the trial was the simple question, can a soldier disobey direct orders? After all, when in war, soldiers are expected to follow orders without exception or explanation. Indeed, some of the defendants even said that they were told that the village contained terrorists. How would they know that was a lie? The argument was that, as shocking as it appeared, it was understandable that a young soldier would follow an order like this in the moment, as deplorable as it was. And so the defense argued that surely the real criminals here were not the soldiers, but the officers who premeditated this savage attack. The defendants were eventually found guilty and were sentenced between 5 and 12 years of hard labor and imprisonment. Some of them who held a higher rank were sentenced to death, though the death sentence was later commuted. The other defendants carried out their sentences and then they were eventually released. And some of the soldiers and officers from that day would live on till all the way up to the 2000s. And even in those later years, new details were emerging. As late as 2011, a report by an American 20-year-old B-17 navigator was made public. He was shot down over a cord in France in late April 1944, and he was still around in June of that year. He said he witnessed the aftermath of the massacre. And if the events of that day were not horrific enough, his official report contained this shocking detail. About three weeks ago, I saw a town within four hours bicycle ride up to Gerbil Farm where some 500 men, women, and children had been murdered by the Germans. I saw one baby who had been crucified. And here we are today, generations after the massacre, and the question still has not been fully answered. Why? Why did the Nazi SS terrorize and destroy this particular village? We might never know the answer fully, and there have been theories of the officers getting mixed up and choosing the wrong village. But it looks most likely that the Germans simply wanted to strike terror into the French resistance. Remember, the D-Day landings had taken place only a few days before the massacre, and this had emboldened the resistance. Perhaps if the Nazis chose to annihilate an everyday village, the message would sweep across the land that any resistance would be met with horrendous and unyielding force. It was most likely an intimidation exercise, though we can't totally be certain. It's possible that Urandor was chosen simply because it had no active French resistance in it, at least none that they knew of, and it was big enough to set an example but small enough to manage the massacre itself. 
Another theory is that the Germans wanted to break in their new Alsatian recruits. That's the French citizens who were pulled in to fight for the Germans. It would be a powerful test of their loyalty and stomach to command them to murder fellow French citizens, even women and children. People still theorize about the precise reasons, but it looks like we'll never truly know for sure. Following the war, the French military general, Charles de Gaulle, made an important decision about the decimated village of orchador Suglin. Rather than rebuild it, he decided to create a brand new version of the village. And that's where we began our journey, in the northwest site, just up from the massacre. The ruins of the original village were to stay standing as a testament to the atrocities of war and a memorial to the hundreds of men, women and children who died that day. In 1999, the French president of the time, Jacques Chirac, dedicated this memorial museum where we stand now. And a walk through this place is, it's difficult, but necessary. On the walls, we see all those pictures of the people who died that day and photographs of how the village used to be and what it became. The amount of detail is both impressive and chilling. There are pictures, for example, of the ten-foot-high window that Madame Ruffance had to jump through. And on display, you'll find wristwatches that are frozen to a precise time because their wearers had been set on fire and the watch mechanism had eventually melted from the heat. But perhaps most striking of all are the ruins of the village itself, which you can walk through. And these will fling you back to that day in 1944. You'll see Singer sewing machines in the collapsed houses or rusting fire-damaged cars in the road. You'll see the cafes and the schools and the bakery. There's that sense that you can see the normal lives of the people right up to the very moment that this appalling crime occurred and changed everything. The newly rebuilt village of Orador Suglan thrives once again. It's where we first arrived, but the old Orador lies in ruins within its site. And it is an eerie and sobering monument to the horrors of war. And for most people who visit here, it's a challenge not to be heartsick. But not everybody sees it that way. On the 21st of August, 2020, this memorial center was vandalized. Someone went up to the huge rusted blades of this solemn building and they defaced the name. As we heard before, it normally reads Village Martyr Centre de la Mémoire. Village of the Martyrs Center for Memory. But someone took a white spray can and they sliced a line through the word Marta and they wrote the word Montieu instead, which is French for liar. This was a village of liars, it said. And next to these words, the Vandal also wrote this. A quand la vérité a renoir a raison, which in English says, When will the truth be told? Renoir is right. This was a reference to Vincent Renoir, who was known as a revisionist and a Holocaust denier. French President Emmanuel Macron condemned this vandalism, and there was an outcry across France. But there were others who were sympathetic to these words. People who are so distant from the events of that day that they can question everything, from the moon landings to the shooting of Sandy Hook to the Holocaust itself. Decades pass, 
and our response to trauma change over those decades. Have you ever heard that phrase, time is a healer? It's true. And if you're going through something hard today, be encouraged, because the days and weeks and months as they slide by, it won't mean the wounds will vanish completely, but the pain can sometimes become just a bit duller. It's still there, but it's less. And while it's good and needed that time is a healer, time can also be a confuser. In the days and months and years after Urhandor, nobody would even think that this massacre, or indeed the Holocaust itself, was a lie. It wouldn't even cross people's minds, not when they had people in front of them who had witnessed the trauma of it. And so there was a reverence and respect for places like this, which is why the village has been kept as this physical memory that you can visit today. It's why this memorial building looks the way it does. The exterior is made of giant, brutal, rusted blades that look like an ugly, out-of-place scar on this land, because that is exactly what they represent. The massacre should not have been a part of the history of Orhandor, but here it is, and there's no denying it. Though time means some might. And as time passes, it gives space for people to question what happened, but also a sense of becoming distant from the immediate pain of it all. During my research for this episode, I read an account by a man called Michael Williams. He runs a site called urhandor.info, and he writes this. At one time, a walk round Orador was a solemn affair, with everyone walking slowly and silently, just looking at the remains. Today, it is common to see people talking loudly on mobile phones, and taking selfies of themselves and friends. I have seen a little boy of about three tugging at the front of the doctor's car on the Champ de Foire. He was far too young to appreciate what he was doing, but his nearby father could have stopped him instead of looking amused. In a way, this activity is also vandalism, as it is reducing the suffering of the past to the background for today's busy life. It is making Orador a place for a day out, a place of historic interest, like a chateau, rather than a memorial to the horrors of the past. So yes, time does heal, but it also has a habit of inoculating us from the sheer relentless reality of incidents like this. It's why places like this memorial are important, and why stories like this need to be told and retold, and yet, as we do it, there is always a risk in the retelling that they take on the nature of myth and fable. But if you stand in the ruined streets of Urhador today, the still charred wood and the piles of stones cry out, Ne pas oublier, ne pas oublier, which means do not forget, do not forget. Thankfully, there are many who are willing to learn from the past. One particularly moving example happened on September the 4th of 2013 when the then-president of Germany, Joachim Gog, made a historic visit to Orlando, He came there in the company of François Hollande, the French president of the time. He was the first German official at such a level to visit the site, and the event was televised, and for many Germans it was the first time they had ever heard of Orlando and the events there. The two presidents were guided around the ruins by none other and Robert Hebras. That's the man who survived the shooting in the barn. He was, if you recall, 
the one who figured the Germans' arrival was nothing to worry about. And yet, at 88 years old, he was able to show the world how wrong he'd been. Seeing the two leaders with this survivor between them was a remarkable moment of healing for France and Germany. Indeed, some of the survivors of Orhandor specifically said that they forgave Germany, but they did not forgive the Nazi officers who ordered the crime. And as I was researching this episode, I must say it was one particularly emotionally charged moment that got to me. It happened during this visit when the French and German presidents were led by Robert Hebras into the church, that church where so many lives had been lost in unimaginable ways. And you see the three men stood before the church altar, just down from where Madame Rufance leapt out. And the three men held hands and locked arms with Hebras in the middle, and they stood there in an embrace as the cameras snapped a moment that reminds us that, yes, time does confuse some people, and yes, time does inoculate some people, but it is a healer, after all. And to those who wage war today, the hope is that time might not just be a healer, but a but a teacher, too. Whether the warnings are listened to is another story. Well, I'm Peter Laws. And we, together, have been actively remembering the Nazi massacre of Orhandor Suglan and the village of the martyrs. In today's episode, Fritz Feufer was played by Paul Becker, the American B-17 navigator by Larry Underwood, and the voice of Michael Williams was Robert Blackwood. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash Peter Laws. Thank you. Taking charge of your future starts with taking the first steps. And saving up to $30 a month on Cox Internet with the Affordable Connectivity Program makes those steps easy to take. Whether they bring you to click upload on your first short film or join now for an online book club. Applying is easy. See if you qualify at cox.com slash ACP. Non-transferable one per household application and eligibility decisions are made by the FCC. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.